Hello, I'm Emma Louise Coffey and you're welcome to the Dairy Edge, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. With so much focus on the environment and emissions, did you know you can cut your emissions by up to 20% while maintaining output and profit? Researcher James Humphreys explains how this is achieved in practice at Chaga Salahid. But first, James gives some background information to the research farm. We've around 130 acres. It's in South Tipperary. It's, it's near the racecourse, um, Tipperary Racecourse or Limerick Junction. Um, we've milked 140 cows this year, 139 at the moment. Um, the farm, it's... It's 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 a heavy enough farm. We've two problems in terms of uh, soil water. One is we've a shallow water table, so on the the farm is quite low lying. It's it's next to a river which runs on on two sides of the farm, and then there's another permanent stream running through the farm. So at any one time, the water table is quite close to the surface. Um, in the winter time, on the lower lying parts of the farm, it's it's at the surface. Um, at, at other times of the year, it might fall down to a meter, maybe two meters. And the higher parts of the farm, then it falls to two or three meters. So we're, the, the water table is never far away. And the second thing then is um, we've very we've uh, heavy subsoil. So we've got about 20 centimeters or eight inches of good topsoil. Below that, then it starts to get increasingly clay. And when you get down to maybe 40 centimeters or so, you're into white marl, this very heavy white marl, and water moves through that very slowly. So for every centimeter of rain or every 10 mils of rain, um, the water table will, will, will rise up by about uh, 16 centimeters. So over the last uh, 10 days or so now, we're after getting over 100 mils of rain. So the water table is, is, is right at the surface as we speak. Um, which in the month of August is is a uh, is uh, a a difficult um, which is it, it's a difficulty and that, that's something we've had to deal with. Um, we 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 have to manage the cows obviously in terms of on off grazing and that sort of thing. But um, over the last number of years, we've every year we've done a small amount of drainage, maybe spent four or five thousand on drainage, just solving different problems on the farm. And to a large extent now, we don't really have as much of a problem as we said we had 15 or 20 years ago. Like the farm is is uh, is very productive, and even with the rain that we've gotten recent year over the last 10 days or so, um, it's still not it's not a problem as as we speak. And I guess look that that um, is very relevant uh, to right now, not so relevant to the conversation today. But if we can, I suppose, what is your advice, uh, James, for farmers who are dealing with the same circumstances as you? You know, we're seeing across the country, depending on you know the soil type and the ability of the uh, of soils to manage water. There are a lot of farmers who are maybe gone in by night, and you know, if rainfall continues, you know, they may have to go in by day and and continue on off grazing across the full day um, for the foreseeable until things dry up? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard to say because there's a lot of differences between different farms. We've been using a soil moisture probe and at, at the moment the soil moisture is up around uh, 55. We're kind of approaching the point where you'd say, well, um, we need to take the cows off. Now, if it gets above 60, 65, that's when we would start on off grazing. 
so at the moment it's 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 fine but of course there are differences in different parts of the country on off grazing works fine four hours in the morning four hours in the evening we found that um you can maintain your output same level of milk output you can put the cows in what we did was put the cows in they're out for four hours go back in out again after the evening milking four hours put them in for the night and we didn't feed them anything when they were inside they're just inside on in, in the on the cubicles and, and they're fine they'll still they, they adapt to that situation very well and, and they're just as productive as if they were out full time. And looking, James, to, to I, I suppose, the conversation that um, we plan to have today um, and it, it's around the idea of low carbon farming. And this is something that you're trialling and demonstrating um, at Salahed Farm. Can you document, I suppose, to start off, the gases that contribute to emissions from Irish dairy farms and look at the intensity of emissions from dairy farms relative to the other enterprises in the country? When people think about greenhouse gases, what they primarily think about is um, carbon dioxide, say from fossil fuel. You know, you can imagine power stations burning fossil fuel and releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And I suppose that's the thing that most immediately springs to mind. Um, but when we look at a farm, say when we look at national emissions, carbon dioxide is the big one. When we look at a farm, if we look at a dairy farm, uh, methane is the, the single biggest emission. So if we if, say if we take solid, for example, around 50% of the emissions coming off the farm are methane generated by the cows um, <clears throat> and the replacements. And the way that we can lower that is to maximize our lifetime milk output per cow and to lower our replacement rate. And, and that's true using the EBI. The, the next big uh, emission is uh, nitrous oxide, which it, it's a very potent greenhouse gas. It, it has uh, 300 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. Now, nitrous oxide, where that comes from primarily from the application of fertilizer. So when you go out to apply fertilizer, it falls on the ground, gets absorbed into the ground, taken up by the grass. That's what you hope happens. But during that process, a small amount of uh, nitrous oxide escapes during the, the, the process of the fertilizer being broken down and converted into the plant available form. A small amount of uh, nitrous oxide escapes. But that has a huge impact in on the emissions from a farm. So around 20% of the emissions from Salahed, where we're using high fertilizer nitrogen is, is in the form of nitrous oxide. The other thing that happens during the, this process is we also get losses of ammonia. Now ammonia isn't a greenhouse gas, but there are also limits on, on there are also reduction targets for ammonia. So if we can switch away from using nitrogen fertilizer to alternatives, we immediately solve or well, help to solve the problem of nitrous oxide and also um, ammonia. The other source of nitrous oxide is the slurry from the uh, from the cattle, from the cows and the replacements. And also they're doing a urine out in the field. So around another 20% of the emissions would be from the, the slurry dug in urine. So that, that's about 90% of our emissions. And then the other 10% is carbon dioxide. And that comes from the various processes, say electricity generation for running the milking parlor, diesel fuel for tractors and, and, and that sort of thing. 
And and James, with all of that in mind, you're looking at various strategies to quantify how much you can reduce your emissions by on farm. So you have, you know, a standard uh, base system and then you're looking at different scenarios um, differentiating from that. Can you give us some information across the, the strategies and the practices? Um, I, I suppose going back to your previous question, to some extent, like when we take the three main gases, you've methane, nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide. It's, it's very difficult to lower methane um, and with, with, with existing technology now there is research going on to look at different additives to lower methane emissions from cows but um, as, as things stand there's nothing immediately available and when something becomes available at some point there'll then be questions about how suitable what are the risks associated with that uh, maybe it's being introduced some new pro- new uh, contaminant being in, introduced into the food chain. So there, there will be questions around that. And as I said, methane is around 50%. Another 20% comes from the, um, the excreta. So the, the work we're doing at Salahead is focused more on the nitrogen side of things, the nitrogen fertilizer and managing the slurry. So if we take our standard system, type of system, more part blueprint type of scenario that we've been running for many years, two and a half cows per hectare using 280 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. Standard cannon urea. If we switch over to using only protected urea combined with um, low emission slurry spreading, you know, optimal management of slurry using a trailing shoe, we can cut our emissions over the entire farm by around 9%. And that's something that can be done relatively easy. It's a relatively easy thing to switch over. Um, switching from cannon urea to protected urea isn't a, a big difficulty. And and using a trailing shoe instead of um, splash plate is, is, is pretty straightforward. The next system that we're looking at then is where we, instead of using the full rate of uh, protected urea, we use a half rate combined with clover. And uh, that's where we're going on with um, around 100 kilos per hectare of clover in the in the spring. And um, then we'll use a, 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 a maybe another 25 kilos at this time of the year just to extend the grazing season. And using that kind of a system, we can cut emissions from, by around 18%. And then the last thing we're looking at, which is very much experimental, and we've been rolling it out in, in, in over the last two years is, is looking at where we cut nitrogen fertilizer out of the equation altogether and just rely purely on uh, clover. And when we take that type of approach, we're looking at a, around a 25-26% reduction in emissions across the whole farm. That's really where we're only relying on clover and uh, recycled slurry. And you mentioned there that the output um, from your standard system is 1.2 kilos of carbon per litre of milk produced, James. What is the target um, level that you would aim to get to? There is a question about how we measure or what we include and what we don't include in these measurements. And the approach we're taking is what you call a global approach, where we look at all the emissions um, whether they originate in Ireland or whether they originate abroad. Um, and, and what I'm primarily aiming at there is uh, import concentrate from South America. 
We could also look at the, the, the figures from the point of view of national emissions and there's pros and cons in both, both, both approaches. But the, 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 the figures I'm quoting now are, are global figures. The, the, the reason for that is that if we compare uh, systems across Europe or across the world, there's very little to differentiate uh, an Irish, Irish milk production from Dutch milk production when we only look at national emissions. Where a big differentiation occurs is when we include, say, concentrate uh, imported from South America. So when we do an international con uh, comparison, uh, our milk then comes out with a much lower carbon footprint. And if you look at it from a consumer's point of view, what they're primarily interested in is uh, the global impact of the, the food that they're buying. So when, when a German consumer or a UK consumer are buying, say, say Irish butter, for example, and if we can show it as a lower carbon footprint, um, it's, it's the global impact that, that they're concerned about. And that's really why um, we're focused on, on those type of figures. So on that basis, we're, we're looking at going from around 1.2 down to what we're achieving at the moment is 0.7. Um, our target is to get down to around 0.6, which would be a 50% reduction. And I guess from the from the practices you have highlighted, um, switching from the standard urea and can that farmers have used, um, you know, kind of widespread on farms to protect a urea, um, looking at low emissions slurry spreading like the trailing shoe, um, reducing the overall amount of um, artificial fertilizer used. Um, and also introducing clover, you know, these will all have a massive impact and cumulatively what, what you can estimate is that it's going to reduce um, emissions by 25%. I suppose looking to looking to um, practicalities on farm, James, um, you know, across these scenarios. So when you move from that standard base or blueprint um, that you talked about at the start, um, if you move to the situation where you're reducing the amount of nitrogen spread or, you know, you're cutting out nitrogen altogether, is there an impact on production? If, if we take um, the first step, say, going from can and urea to protected urea and using low emission slurry spreading, there's no, there's no real impact there. There's no impact. If you take the second step there, switching half the protected urea to clover-based system there's a lot of that now in moor park we have a lot of that and solid say so there's very there's no difference in production between those two systems when 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 you move towards the 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 no nitrogen situation like the levels of production that we're getting at the moment would be around 95 percent of where we're using 250 kilos of nitrogen per hectare and I, that might be surprising and it is uh, somewhat surprising um but when you think about uh, clover-based systems, say if we're using clover with 125 kilos of nitrogen per hectare, as soon as we start taking that nitrogen out of the system, we start to fix more nitrogen. So the less fertilizer you apply, the more nitrogen you, the, the clover will fix. So there's a compensatory element there. Now we've done some old, say some of our older work, it is, it is a while ago now, we, we, we looked at the economic comparison of uh, clover-based systems with the fertilizer-based systems. And even if we, we lose some production, say 95, 90% of the output, uh, the clover-based system can still be as profitable because you have uh, lower costs. 
So there's a, a compensatory element there in terms of the economics. So we'd be confident enough to say that, say, particularly going the first step, say, half rate of nitrogen with clover, there's, there's, it's unlikely to have an economic impact in terms of output. The next step then, uh, that's more of a question, but that's uh, work in progress. As I said, we're, we're only into the second year of that. Um, so, you know, it's something we're going to have to... It'll be really interesting, James, to see two and three years down the line, you know, do those um, trends continue, you know, where, as you say, you're, you've no impact for your first two changes, but for the, the third stage where you're cutting out nitrogen altogether, at the moment you're at 90 to 95% of the performance. And like, you know, there's a substantial cost associated with artificial fertilizer on farms. So um, as, as we say, very, very interesting. A few more practicalities um, to discuss, James. You know, um, in a way like the things like protected urea and the trailing shoe, you know, there are no brainers, um, you know, you know, a, a conversation we've had last week with Marco Sullivan, you know, all derogation farmers are now using um, the trailing shoe or, you know, other low emission slurry sp spreading methods. Um, but, you know, taking it a step further and introducing clover across the whole farm, you know, that's not going to be done overnight. Um, and, I suppose from your perspective at Salahid, you would have pioneered a lot of the clover research, you know, in the last 15 um, years or so, um, you know, that that has impacted on what farmers are doing across the country today. You know, how long is that process? I think there's a major that that there's a major obstacle there. And like as we speak, um, a lot of the Chagas farms now are going over to clover based systems and, and that conversion process is a it's a massive challenge because like really when you're in a highly productive, if you're in a high production system, like it's different to what we were doing, say maybe 15 years ago and when, when in the rep scheme, but at the current time when dairy farms are generally fairly heavily stocked to make a conversion, you're really looking at reseeding. You really look, need to be looking at reseeding to introduce clover into the swards. And you know, there, there is a, a limit to how much of a farm that you can reseed in any one year. What we kind of recommend to people is to is to build up a, a stock of silage um, before conversion. Uh, some parts of the farm could be could already have some clover that could be promoted and enhanced by oversowing, but but fundamentally you're talking about reseeding. And then as you're going through the process, you have the problem of of bloat. Now, we've never really had a problem with bloat at Salahead because we maintain cows on, when we have a clover system, we keep the cows on, on the clover from spring right throughout the year. What you can't really do is move cows back and forth between swards that are very high in clover and with, with no clover because that's, that's really very high risk of bloat, particularly during July and August, September. Um, and that creates a problem for a conversion. So there are obstacles there, uh, practical obstacles that need to be considered and need to be, um, like if, if somebody is considering uh, converting, is, is, is to have a clear plan in place. Um, in terms of the, the motivation for it, I think it's clear enough. Economically, it can be positive, uh, certainly in terms of ammonia and nitrous oxide emissions. But as things stand, uh, the, the, the policy or our government policy around this is 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 uh, not at all clear in terms of um, 
what's expected of farmers. So I, I, I don't know what to say about that in terms of um, of, of recommending it to people as, as things stand. And as, as you say, it, it's been put in across a lot of Chagas farms at the moment. There is a lot of research, but for, for farmers, individuals who are doing it, a strong plan needs to be put in place as how you are going to implement it on your farm. And I think that's a good tip you have as well in terms of ensuring that there is sufficient silage in the yard before you take this on. I suppose, you know, on, on a silage uh, on a silage note, uh, James, um, we talk an awful lot about white clover um, for dairy systems. Um, is there a role for white clover within, um, you know, conventional dairy production systems? Well, uh, like what we've been trialing now in the last couple of years is, is is putting red clover into the grazing mix. So we're putting in maybe two kilos of red clover, two kilos of white clover and uh, 10 kilos of ryegrass. And... Uh, we're, we're into the third year of that now and we're very happy with it in terms of giving us um, a good boost to production. Now, the expectation with red clover is that it doesn't last uh, very well. If you got four or five years out of it, you'd be considered to be doing very well. If you got uh, two or three years is, is kind of what's typically expected. But like red clover is huge, hugely productive. It is a much higher capacity to fix nitrogen than white clover. Like white clover, you could be talking about up to 200 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. With red clover, you're talking about up to 300 kilos. So putting red clover in in a, in a reseeding mix for grazing silage, primarily for grazing, we find that uh, that that has worked very well and certainly made a positive contribution. The other area we're looking at is um, on outside blocks, where you're cutting maybe three or four cuts of silage and maybe some zero grazing. And again, it's 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 holding up very well there. <clears throat> in that case, we're using uh, four kilos of red clover with with a hybrid ryegrass, eight kilos of hybrid ryegrass. And I think in that situation, okay, you're going to be looking at reseeding a lot more often, maybe every four or five years. But productivity-wise, we're talking we can easily hit 16 tons in in the first full year of production and maintain that for for two or three years, uh, maybe two. You know, you're talking about maybe four or five year production cycle before you need to reseed again. To finish up, James, can you uh, identify two or three benefits that ye see from implementing low carbon farming at Salahid? Practically, I think it's it's fine in terms of milk output. We can achieve high levels of milk output. I think profitability, the, the indication so far is that uh, they're they're there's a, not a major loss in, in profitability or at least we can maintain similar level of, of profitability which is which is key and then the third thing is of course uh, we 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 big reduction in well look we'll, we'll say maybe 20% reduction on, on dairy farms in, in, in greenhouse gas emissions whether that will be enough to satisfy the, the regulators or not it's, it's, is, is a question and the other, the other big question, of course, is um, is is uh, future expansion. Like, is there capacity within that scenario for future expansion? And if you go back again to the the motivation for this work, like um, uh, John Professor John Sweeney was on the on the television there a couple of nights ago, and he was talking about uh, cutting the national herd by around twenty percent to meet our greenhouse gas emissions. I think if we start cutting numbers. Jim, we cut our national capacity for 
for for output. So I think maintaining national heritage is is our number one priority, and that then focuses in on looking at where else we can make reductions. And I think um, putting clover in instead of instead of nitrogen fertilizer has its difficulties, um, but it it is something that that offers us an opportunity, I think, to maintain our national output while still meeting uh, these environmental requirements. That's great. Thank you, James. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the Dairy Edge podcast. And my thanks to James Humphreys for joining me on this week's show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey and join me next time for your Dairy Edge.